This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Surrogate Warfare, The Transformation of War in the 21st Century by Andreas Krieg and Jean-Marc Riccoli in 2019. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Conclusion The popular vision of war remains closely tied to the tale told by the great war movies. The individual's heroic self-sacrifice for the band of brothers serving to protect greater national ideals and narratives. The romantic idea of war that is shaped by blockbusters such as The Bridge on the River Kwai, Battle of Britain, or Pearl Harbor, and more recently by Dunkirk is built around the soldier's selfless duty to the nation as an extension of protecting wife, children, and family at home. The soldier is portrayed as fighting for the greater good, which at least in the West has been defined within the parameters of the state and the nation since the 18th century, against an evil other, posing an existential threat to the community's survival. This war nostalgia appears to be widely out of sync with the reality of war in the 21st century, at least in the West. Even though extremists on the fringe, both the religious fundamentalists and the populist demagogues, are desperately trying to reinvent notions of nation, race, and religion, security has become a much more abstract concept. Western policymakers define security in the 21st century on the basis of the freedom from risks rather than threats, risks that are subjectively defined and bureaucratically managed. In the capitals of Europe, in Washington, and in Ottawa, the maintenance of security in the 21st century has become a sober bureaucratic exercise far removed from the emotional clash of wills of previous centuries. Security maintenance as the state's prerogative has become just another public service that can be delegated to specialists who implement policy, doing so without drawing in the wider public with a levy on mass. Nonetheless, the world has not become a more peaceful place. While in the rest, West, risk management has become the modus operandi for dealing with security, in the global south, war has not really moved beyond the butchery of previous centuries. In the developing world, violent gangs rule territory and extract money from war economies, while the reach of fragile states remains constrained to regions close to the capital. In the environment of dog-eat-dog, -dog, those left unprotected by the state form alternative associations to not only manage socio-political affairs, but more importantly also to ensure communal security in all dimensions. At times, these new security associations merely supplement the security services of state. Often, however, they challenge the state and contribute to the erosion of its power. Despite the growing rift between the global north and the global south, we have identified four essential features of war in the 21st century that affect states in both the developed and developing worlds. Conflicts have become more globalized, privatized, securitized, and mediatized. In an apolar world, where no one state or organization achieves hegemony, the global system increasingly resembles the medieval state of anarchy, in which non-state, state, and suprastate actors were competing over resources, influence, and power. The neo-medieval state of anarchy of the 21st century appears to be a competitive system of transnational nature, in which territorial integrity and state sovereignty are undermined by a dynamic interaction between state and non-state authority across and beyond the boundaries of states. The power to disrupt and destroy is no longer exclusively held by the state, which, although arguably still being the primus inter pares, finds itself struggling to control the flow of ideas, individuals, resources, technology, and ultimately conflict across ever more porous borders. 
The globalized conflict is transnational in nature and disregards the state-centric norms, conventions, and laws put in place in the 19th century to limit war, and it spreads across a far greater spatial and temporal range of threat. These everywhere conflicts are far more privatized than the conventional wars of the 19th and 20th centuries. Besides soldiers in national uniforms, the main protagonists of 21st century warfare are non-state actors such as warlords, war profiteers, organized criminals, terrorists, and paramilitary groups. In the Global South, non-state actors have taken a bottom-up approach, challenging the state where it fails to provide security inclusively. In the Global North, the rise of non-state actors has been supported by the push to commercialize public services. Security in the developed world has become a commodity to be traded and provided by the most competitive bidder. Commercial security providers increasingly supplement traditionally public security services. Further, the state in the 21st century is faced with an ambiguous threat environment lacking a tangible antagonist against which to develop a security policy. Therefore, states have developed alternative approaches to dealing with insecurity, most commonly relying on risk-based rather than threat-based approaches. Confronted with intangible threats emanating from localities far away, often simultaneously and within different domains, states engage in securitization, namely, constructing security agendas based on more subjective risk assessments. In times of protracted and geographically contrapuntal threats, such as global terrorism, simmering insurgency, and cyber warfare, threats need to be engaged before they evolve, sometimes even before they really exist. Therefore, risk management is no longer based on an objective security policy looking at antagonists' intentions and capabilities. Instead, risks are being constructed and managed bureaucratically, while policymakers, particularly in the West, are desperate to mitigate the political costs of omitting risks. It seems as if it has become more socially acceptable to overreact to a potential risk than to underreact. The lines between rationality and hysteria have become blurred. Finally, the state operates in an increasingly mediatized environment, whereby the emergence of social media has not just changed patterns of communication across communities, but has become a major means of warfare in itself. The media domain creates a new battlefield where narratives clash, disrupting both state policies and communities. In conjunction with kinetic operations on the physical battlefield, the clash over narratives in the cybersphere sets the parameters for strategic victory in war. States are under constant media surveillance and unable to contain the multiplicity of opinions, narratives, and messages being exchanged in an unconstrained cybersphere. As much as social media has had a democratizing effect, it has created an uncontrollable engine of self-propelling data that can be shaped by everyone, instantly, anywhere. Maintaining the monopoly over information, particularly that which makes the difference between success and failure in kinetic military operations, has become an impossibility for the state. As a consequence, one could argue that the authority of the state in the 21st century is the weakest it has been since the Peace of Westphalia in 1648. The state no longer appears as the hegemonic protagonist in global affairs, while its role has been reduced to that of a primus inter pares. While the state might still retain its de jure monopoly of international affairs, it is de facto not able to monopolize power in a way that it can be more than a first among equals in what has become an increasingly transnational global environment. 
Within the apolar world of the new millennium, the state finds it hard to provide effectively and inclusively for the various security needs of its societies because groups and communities have ever more specific demands for security within a threat environment that is ever more unpredictable. For the state to maintain its status as a communal security provider, it has to look for alternative arrangements to provide security to its protégés. The fragile states of the Global South enter into security assemblages with surrogates to augment their capacity and legitimacy as security providers. The more robust states of the Global North use surrogates to achieve deniability, increase their capability, and save costs. As this book has shown, the externalization of the burden of warfare to surrogates is a response of the state for dealing with the complexity of providing security in the 21st century. Creating assemblages with non-state actors who either supplement or substitute state capacity allows the state to remain relevant in globalized, privatized, securitized, and mediatized conflicts. As a manager of violence directing surrogates to provide security on its behalf, the state seems to be able to evade its redundancy. As we have shown in this book, the externalization of the burden of warfare to surrogates is not revolutionary in itself, as it is a mere return to the pre-modern forms of warfare when empires and city-states were trying to secure their place in a system whose anarchy went far beyond that in realist conceptualizations. What has changed, however, is the hybridity of 21st century warfare. States coexist in partner with non-state actors and technology to coerce, disrupt, or destroy. Today, the state-centric international system of the post-World War II period competes with the transnational system in which non-state actors, and sometimes even individuals, exercise influence and power outside the norms, values, and laws of the late 19th and 20th centuries. De jure, the state retained the monopoly over international affairs, while de facto, this monopoly has already been compromised in the increasingly apolar context of the early 20th, 21st century. Nonetheless, the state retains a crucial control of this apolar system as the primary communal security provider competing with alternative security providers. Creating security assemblages through the externalization of coercion to surrogates can thereby help the state to manage this hybridity. Even the most powerful country today, the United States, relies increasingly on surrogates, both human and technological, to manage the risks from protracted and geographically dispersed threats across the globe. With a public aversion to major combat operations and a mediatized fear-mongering from around the threat from global terrorism, any White House tenant is faced with the dilemma of avoiding the U.S. military, getting drawn into long-term military operations while ensuring that risks are not disregarded. The U.S. war on ISIS is a case in point. In Iraq and Syria, small platoons of U.S. SOF have partnered with local groups to contain the threat of jihadism in the Levant. Technological surrogates empowered by social media are being used to spread narratives to counter those of the self-proclaimed caliphate, while drones provide the U.S. military with the eyes and ears to locate and destroy the ISIS mujahideen. Financial and human costs for America are being minimized, reducing political costs for policymakers in Washington. Human surrogates provide legitimacy in the eyes of the local population, which still looks at U.S. troops suspiciously. Surrogates also provide small states with new means to exercise power. 
The UAE, one of the richest countries in the world per capita, lacks the human capacity to build a military powerful enough to secure its expeditionary ambitions in the Gulf and the Horn of Africa. Arguably the most advanced Arab military today, the UAE armed forces have long relied on mercenaries and contractors to augment capacity and capability. Similar to other Persian Gulf states, the UAE has discovered surrogate warfare as an effective means to translate financial power into coercive power. In its war in Yemen, the UAE has since 2015, in addition to relying on local militia groups, deployed 450 Latin American contractors from its Abu Dhabi base of more than 1,800 Latin American contractors. The fact that many of these contractors were killed in combat suggests that unlike Western armed forces relying on commercial security companies, the UAE has used contractors to directly engage in hostilities. In the developing world, surrogacy is even more complex. Where the lack of capacity is further exacerbated by the lack of financial resources, states have to find more innovative means to externalize security provision and warfare. While on the one hand, African states have externalized the burden of ethnic war to militias, they have at the same time partnered with multinational companies to not only extract resources, but also to provide local security around extraction sites. As Rita Abramson and Michael C. Williams illustrate, mining companies in Tanzania are granted concessions by the governments in areas from which the state security sector has largely withdrawn. Hiring private military and security companies, mining companies have been able to both secure their extraction sites and provide security to local communities left widely unprotected by the state. Here, the fragile state has entered into an assemblage with an indirect surrogate to increase the coverage of public security. The most advanced forms of surrogacy emerging in recent years have been technological platforms relying on the cyber domain as well as increasingly those using AI. While drones have been potent surrogates in replacing both the infantry soldier and the pilot, AI has the potential to revolutionize the way we think about warfare. Externalizing the burden of warfare to bots operating in cyberspace fundamentally alters the ways and means states can influence, disrupt, and destroy. Coercion need not be tied to kinetic violence. The disruptive power of social bots by Russia in previous years to shape public perception and opinion in the West might have a far more disruptive impact on Western states than the use of kinetic violence. Cyber propaganda through the targeted spread of disinformation has provided the erstwhile superpower with a surrogate that strikes with plausible deniability, at limited costs, and without the need for huge capacity. Bots and trolls are fed by youth communities embraced and financed by the Kremlin, striking the West at its core, the freedom of speech and information. Similarly, armies of private hackers represent a force de frappe of surrogates that shield states from responsibility and magnify their capabilities. Thus, the campaign by the hacker group Anonymous against ISIS contributed to drastically reducing its presence on open social media, such as Twitter. While the first concrete impacts of AI are beginning to emerge in the cyber domain through the use of adaptive malware, for instance, increased attention to the development of autonomous weapon systems, AWS, promises to fund profoundly alter the way wars will be waged in both the cyber and the traditional domains of war. AWS will represent the, the technological surrogate par excellence as they will provide their users with deniability while fulfilling the objectives of the patron autonomously. Hence, surrogacy comes in various shapes and forms for a variety of reasons and motivations. 
At the heart of surrogacy lies the aspect of externalization of the burden of warfare as an essential element for the state to provide security to its communities. Surrogacy allows the state to redefine the Trinitarian conceptualization of war that has dominated the discourse on warfare since the 18th century, namely the relationship between state society and the state soldier. While warfare is no longer just limited to the use of coercion to advance tangible security interests of society, the state has to look for a non-Trinitarian agent to fulfill the most fundamental social contractarian functions of the state to provide security inclusively to its society. In non-Trinitarian wars, the state increasingly relies on neo-Trinitarian assemblages, namely partnerships between the state as society's agent and a non-Trinitarian surrogate. A new trinity arises between society, the state, and a surrogate as the security provider. The surrogate does not necessarily have any obvious direct relationship with the state as the patron, allowing the state to employ the surrogate anywhere, anytime, without having to justify the deployment of state soldiers. The state can do so amid a highly mediatized environment, against intangible threats, and with abstract risks far removed from the homeland if necessary and against a range of different actors. Surrogates allow states to manage the multiplicity of risks with limited resources at low human, financial, and thereby political costs with a degree of deniability and with local legitimacy. The state can continue to provide security for its society in the complex global context of the 21st century through the coercive management of risks through surrogates as alternative means of coercion. Essentially, these neo-Trinitarian security assemblages allow the state to engage in low-intensity, protracted conflicts over a long period of time without having to declare actual war. The degree to which surrogate warfare is actually always warfare is debatable. As the management of risks does not necessarily require major kinetic combat operations, surrogate warfare provides the state with niche capabilities that can be quickly mobilized and deployed in the case of technological platforms, even instantly. Breaking the definition of war down to its core as an act of violence to compel our enemy to do our will, surrogate warfare definitely provides the state with a means to compel the enemy to do its will. Although the use of kinetic violence by human surrogates is still at the forefront of surrogate warfare, the increasing reliance on the cyber domain and other technological platforms based on AI allows the state to coerce and disrupt without physical violence. Nonetheless, coercion and disruption, even through non-kinetic force, is arguably violent, even if just indirectly. A cyber attack on a desalination plant in the Persian Gulf, a traffic management system in a major city such as London, or a major news outlet in a country amid a simmering crisis would have violent consequences for local communities. Thus, the externalization of the burden of warfare from the conventional infantry soldier to a human or technological surrogate provides the state with alternative means to coerce the enemy to do its will through disruption and destruction, which is ultimately violent. While the state might be able to secure its position as a communal security provider within a globalized world, surrogate warfare is far from being the panacea for the state in the 21st century. Externalizing the burden of warfare means that the state surrenders not only its former monopoly over violence, but even more its control over coercion. As this book has demonstrated, the externalization of coercion to substitutes is accompanied by an effective externalization of control. In comparison to the state relying on the soldier as its agent, embedded in the state's command and control structure, 
the human surrogate in particular thrives with autonomy. What emerges is a zero-sum game between the state as the patron trying to maximize control over surrogate operations and the surrogate trying to maximize autonomy, a game that the surrogate is more likely to win. The reason is that the surrogate, once resourced and armed, might be more likely to survive without the patron than the other way around because of the fact that state patrons are averse to getting directly drawn into conflict. The more the patron seeks to avoid putting his own boots on the ground, more likely is the surrogate to exploit the patron's inability to internalize the burden of war. Surrogates tend to abuse patron support to further their own agenda, especially when patron and surrogate objectives are divergent. Financial support in arms might be proliferated to other groups. Surrogates might morph into terrorist or insurgent organizations, eventually undermining the patron's objectives. Commercial entities such as PMSCs might overcharge and underperform. The most severe consequence of conducting war via human surrogates is the unpredictability of the principal-agent relationship in the long run. Once trained, armed, and resourced, human surrogates are difficult to demobilize, disarm, and reintegrate. Consequently, surrogates might have a long-term destabilizing impact on a conflict, particularly when they evolve into a serious contender of power in a conflict and are unwilling to contribute constructively to post-conflict stabilization. Warfare by surrogate can be an effective alternative to conventional warfare only when the state engages in strict delegation, namely when the state provides direct strategic and operational oversight over the surrogate. Only when surrogates are embedded in a joint headquarters and are operationally directed by the patron's own forces can the state actually ensure that objectives are being achieved. The issue of control of technological surrogates is less problematic than in the case of human surrogates because most current technological systems require a human in or on the loop. UAVs are still dependent on service personnel for operation. Yet, over the past two decades, weapon systems have been developed that operate with increasing autonomy. Similar to a biological virus, a cyber virus develops a life of its own once released, thereby becoming increasingly uncontrollable. These automated and increasingly AWS will, inc will represent a major challenge to established norms and laws of armed conflict in the near future. Since 2014, the UN has started to deal with this issue by trying to regulate the development and use of AWS. The fact that four years after the UN launched this process, no agreement on the definition of AWS has been reached, let alone on what AI means, demonstrates how those states in the process of developing these systems have no interest in putting regulations in place. The emerging arms race in this field will raise profound control issues for the technological surrogates to be developed in the next decade. The assemblages that are being created between state and surrogate need to be designed in a way as to guarantee that cooperation and coordination are not coincidental. Checks and balances need to be carefully put in place to give the patron assurances for surrogate compliance and ensure the surrogate necessary levels of autonomy. It is at this equilibrium where surrogacy can be mutually beneficial, especially when the state enters into a security assemblage with an already existing non-state actor. An assemblage can be beneficial because it allows for the integration of an otherwise completely autonomous sector into the sphere of control of the state. In the developing world, assemblages can thereby serve as a tool to strengthen the authority of the state even when the surrogate operates relatively autonomously. 
Examples would be the attempts by the Iraqi government to integrate Shia militaries into the security sector since 2006. Nonetheless, state control of surrogates will never amount to the same amount of control that the state has over the soldier as an agent integrated into a rigid command and control structure. Hence, the state's increased attempt to develop links with surrogates, replacing or supplementing the conventional infantry soldier, is not a real solution to the state's dilemma in the 21st century. Even through surrogate warfare, the state cannot make the anarchy of the transnational system more predictable. Surrogate warfare allows the state to establish its position as a mere manager of violence amid an anarchical, apolar transnational context. The state has to come to terms with the fact that surrogates rarely deliver quick victories, as objectives might be achieved only as a mere side effect of the surrogate's campaign. Delegating coercion to external agents without the actual willingness and capability to step in when necessary might leave the state at its least powerful since the 18th century. Yet, in the long run, it can ensure the survival of the state as the provider for communal security, acting as a primus inter pares in a more complex multi-stakeholder global system. It is important to note that unless the state is willing to employ the state soldier directly in the tactical quagmire of 21st century warfare, in sufficient numbers, and with a strong enough mandate, the state's role will always be reduced to that of a bystander managing someone else's war. Those who bear the burden of war will eventually own it.